Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, Lenten Preaching Edition, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church, recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. Good afternoon, everyone. It is, it's great to be here at Calvary with you um, on a Thursday uh, in the early afternoon. Um, it's also really great to be in Memphis um, listening to the music. I, was, I found myself surprisingly uh, moved and taken back to my childhood. Um, my maternal grandmother, Peggy Horton and her sister Naomi Horton grew up in Milan and I as a child would come every summer for our family reunion with the Hortons for the pig roast and for most of my life until I managed to get out of Oklahoma and Tennessee and um, move to Connecticut I thought Tennessee consisted of Memphis and Milan. Um, <laughs> it was just a short ride uh, in their early 20s, they got on a train that stopped in Oklahoma City. It was as far as it went at that point. Got off the train. Oklahoma City was nothing but a big, large patch of dirt. And, uh, and with their then-husbands, uh, started the first pharmacy, which at that time included the uh, counter where you could get your cherry Coke and burgers, the cosmetic counter, and the place where you could buy toys and just about anything you needed, including the medication. So I find myself very uh, moved thinking particularly about my grandmother in this place. What an amazing story. I love this scripture, and it is pure coincidence that when asked to preach today, um, when looking at the lectionary, this is the passage, because this is also the passage that we are presently using at Union to describe our whole process of strategic planning and forward looking. We call it our taking off the roof plan. Um, and what this passage captures is, I think, a word of enormous hope but also some very concrete directions for the future of the church, for the future of our witness to Jesus Christ, for the future of theological education. It's an amazing story. It starts with this group of four friends. It doesn't tell us much about who these four friends are, but what we know about them is they are very talented and they are very committed to their friend who is sick. At the very start of the story is a community, a small one, bound together by their concern, determined concern, to find healing for the one they love. Now what a scene it is. They come to see Jesus because they've heard that he heals, but they get to the house and the crowds are so big they can't even get near the doors much less into the room where they know Jesus is standing in the middle preaching. 
So instead of just walking away or standing far out on the margin, these four friends get busy. The fact that they can't reach Jesus, that the doors are literally blocked, that the place of worship is not accessible to them, doesn't stop them. Now imagine what they must have had with them in terms of tools and experience to hatch the plot they hatch. They climb onto the roof, the four of them, and they take it off so they can lower their friends. The, the scripture passage is interesting in that it says once they had removed the roof, they had to dig through it, which as we know um, from archaeological evidence of that time, roofs consisted of a wood structure but often were for um, insulation purposes covered with layers and layers of dirt, like the mud huts that we know um, from even uh, the last century, like the mud hut my grandmother was born in. So they get to the top of the roof. They must have had a ladder with them. They must have had on tool belts of some sort so they could saw through the wood, a shovel so they could dig out the dirt. They must have had tons of rope ready to go, and they must have had hammers and nails to construct a mechanism by which their friend could literally have his mat put on it and be lowered down to Jesus. They had tools. They had community. They had expertise. And perhaps most importantly, they thought outside the box. They weren't going to be detoured by the closing of the doors, by the inability to get to the center. They were going to make their way because of their commitment to healing. Wow, what a story. And then what transpires once they appear? Imagine if in the middle of this sermon suddenly we heard sawing sounds and then a big hole opened up in the roof and a body began to descend with the friends climbing down the ropes beside it. Quite a scene. You can imagine all of the people going, what is going on here? Um, the, the friend is lowered, and Jesus says, your faith is remarkable. Your sins are forgiven. And then this argument transpires. What right do you have to say that, Jesus? This person, you can imagine all of the scuttlebutt that's going on of the people who are standing in the back and they wish they were in the front. And why is this sick person who couldn't even get in the door suddenly not only getting Jesus' attention but being healed when all of the, the healthier and higher class people have made it into the building or probably sitting on the front row enjoying the presence of Jesus? They've been suddenly displaced by his attention going to the one who couldn't get in. And they squabble back and forth. What right do you have to say that? And Jesus says, well, would you rather I say your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and walk? Very interesting combination of words that leave Jesus' mouth. Because what he ends up saying is the claim that your sins are forgiven is the same thing as saying take up your mat and walk. 
closeness of the forgiveness of sin to the actual manifestation of what healing looks like in this passage is undeniable. And the friend, now healed, picks up his mat and walks through the crowds. He doesn't sit on the front row. He Can't you almost just see him? Probably his other four friends trailing behind him, proudly walking through this crowd that they couldn't get through. Now, not only the center of attention, but the embodiment of God's healing justice. It's a stunning story. And there are so many very clear parallels to our own time, to the place of the church, of theological education, of Christian identity, of what it means to follow Jesus. At this point in our time and place, in our churches, in our communities, in our nation, and around the world. For the church, it's a challenge because there are so many things that we know and some of them that we don't want to know, but so many things that close the doors to those who can't get in. Sometimes it's the rules that we have about who is welcome, exclusions that churches across the country have with respect to women's leadership, with respect to LGBTQI participation, ordination, and marriage. Those are closed doors. What does it mean to open them up? We also have closed doors in so many congregations across this country that have to do with 400 years and continuing of deep racial divide and bias. Indeed, deeply often unconscious, but door-closing divisions that make the crowd white and the outsiders that can't get in to the sites of healing, communities of color across the country. You think about the friends and the tools that they need and the expertise. We often ask ourselves at Union, do we have the right tools? Are we teaching our students the right things as they go and prepare to become ministers in the world? It's very clear now that expertise and tools related to technology and the capacity to do virtual worship, where it may not be the sole way communication happens and community is built, it's nonetheless a necessary component to that education. At Union, we often ask ourselves, what are the barriers that we're putting up to our own doors for theological education? One of the biggest barriers is simply the cost the cost of theological education, the cost of training ministers ready to do the work of climbing on roofs across this country and cutting open holes so that the sick and the wounded, the marginal, the unjustly cast away can enter these places. 
we're not only asking about the tools needed, but we're asking about the communities. Are we giving our students the ability to always imagine what leadership means, not as a single friend jumping on the roof? In this story today, what was accomplished could not have been accomplished alone. Those four friends had to work together closely and be of one mind, almost like a single body, coordinating quickly their work so they could cut the hole and dig through the dirt and lower their friend. What a symphony of action as four became one that orchestrated this opening. I think that this story also, in important ways, applies not only to theological education, to the church in the United States today, as it faces decreasing numbers, while there remain many healthy, vibrant communities, like the community of Calvary, where they face a sense of, why is it that we're inside and experiencing Jesus and everyone else doesn't want to be here? The question. Why is that happening? Why do doors that we think are open not appear as open to those who are outside but yearn within themselves to find places of spiritual nurture and to bask in the glory of the proclamation of divine love? But it's also a message about what it means to live in the United States today, and to think about, in a democracy, what does it mean to have crowds that close doors so that those who need access, who desire to be a part, who have a right to be a part of this amazing nation that we are, can't get through the doors on our borders, in the dramatically unequal character of our educational system and health care. Closed doors, not equal access. And perhaps most importantly, for today's reflection, the active work, like the scribes in today's scripture, the active planning that is taking place across this nation to close the doors to so many people by attacking voting rights. Can you imagine a more powerful way to shut a door in a democracy than to make it so that people cannot vote? There's a message in here for our churches, our schools, and our nation. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, we have been witness to so many atrocities. We have seen the winds of war blow through our communities. We have suffered illness. We have seen the breakdown of order. 
And the question remains, who is there that has the courage to lead us forward? He doesn't say this, but I say, to cut that hole in the roof so that Jesus can be seen and can heal. And Bonhoeffer goes on to say, we don't need clever tacticians. We don't need developed domestic plans. And in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's terms, he's referring specifically to the rise of the Third Reich in Germany. We don't need savvy political leaders and political divisions. What we need is just a handful of people who are strong enough and humble enough, who have the capacity for self-interrogation, and in the midst of self-interrogation, the will to move forward. For it is with people of this ilk, Bonhoeffer says, the path will appear, for God is with us. The title of this series is Trauma and Grace. When you think about the sick friend, when you think about the traumas of this moment, the list as I have shared it with you, and you have no doubt added in your own mind to it, is large. This is my first time to stand in front of a congregation and preach without a mask and with this many people present. We've been through, shared as a church and as a whole globe, a pandemic of devastating proportions. When the trauma, the sickness, the wounds of soul and of community that have been left upon us are not wounds that easily disappear. All of us, in so many ways, are, as a community and as individuals, the sick person outside the door that coming out of a pandemic struggles to understand what have we been through and what does it take to see and name and feel the harm that has been done? And to ask the question boldly, as we move forward and we open the space for grace, that glorious love of God, which is always there for us, it's always our own inabilities to turn around, look up, or look down, or look in the eyes of a friend and see it. But what kind of holes in our hearts, in our imaginations, in our communities, in our plans and purposes, do we need to be cutting at this moment so that trauma is met with grace in all of its robust, always unimaginable, and yet completely comprehensive, the love of God that brought you here today, 
that will send you out into the world for the rest of the week. And that sends us all to those places where our own souls, the souls of those excluded, the souls of those who wait at the margins, the bodies of those who are broken, await the ingenuity, the creativity, the tools, the camaraderie, the friendship, and the determination that our four friends this morning show us. The Calvary Podcast theme music was composed by Spence Bailey. Special thanks to Robin Banks, Director of Communications at Calvary, and Heidi Rupke, Lenten Preaching Series Coordinator. And thanks to you for listening. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.